Hey everyone, um, in this recording I'm going to talk about, well, basically the New Covenant again and how children of believers are still in included in the Covenant. Um, but I'm going to do that by looking at Hebrews chapters 3 and 4 to show that we as New Testament Christians, New Testament believers, stand within the covenant in the same relation as the Old Testament, the Old Covenant believers did, those, um, the Israelites. And, and why does that matter? Well, in the Old Covenant, children were included in the covenant. My position, our position as Presbyterians is that they were never taken out of the covenant. You get to the New Covenant, Acts chapter 2, verse 38 and following in that area there, it says the promise of salvation, of the gift of the Holy Spirit and so on, is held out to you, that is, the believer, and your children, and to all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. So the covenant promise is still to the believer, to his children, and now to the Gentiles, the nations that are far off as well. And Ephesians, um, can't remember if it's two eleven or where, but Ephesians, I believe it's in chapter two, or no, 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 ah, four or two, I can't remember. I think I mentioned it in the last recording, talks about um, the Gentiles who were once far off have now been brought near through the blood of Christ to the covenants of promise. And um, I should probably try to clarify, you know, when we talk about the covenants and the covenants of promise. And then at other times you'll hear me say, well, there's only one covenant. I, you know, that can be confusing. Uh, that can sound, you know, um, contradictory. But it's, it's not. I'm, I'm, I'm saying that there is one covenant in one sense and um, more than one covenant in a different sense. Uh, Ephesians 2.12 is the verse that says that at that time, I'll go back to verse 11. Therefore remember that you once, once Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Christ is our peace, it goes on to say, in his flesh he's abolished the dividing wall that we're all one in Christ now. Um, for through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. It's through the spirit in Christ in the new covenant that Jews and Gentiles alike have access to the Father. So the temple system is now, um, you know, the Old Testament rituals and sacrifices is now fulfilled and realized in Christ. And that does not mean... Um, abolished as if there isn't still a sacrifice. Jesus is our eternal sacrifice, atonement for sin. It doesn't mean there isn't a priesthood anymore. Jesus Christ is our great high priest. And the New Testament says that there is the priesthood of all believers, that in Christ we all are priests in the kingdom of God, that we are all to give our reasonable service and to be a living sacrifice, to dedicate and give our whole life to him in worship to him. And so the Old Testament is in seed form. The New Testament is the full bloom. And now that Christ is in us and we as true believers are in him, um, we are the body of Christ. 
And Christ is a great high priest, but we are all priests in the house of God through Christ by the Spirit. And um, yeah, Jews and Gentiles are now brought near. But the, the, the point about the covenants and, and, and so on. Um, notice in verse 12 of Ephesians chapter 2, it says the covenants, plural, of promise. And it's a singular promise that connects all the covenants. And so there's the oneness and the two-ness or the, you know, the more than oneness. Covenants, multiple, promise, one. But it, so it's proper to say there is ultimately one covenant because there is one covenant promise, one covenant message of salvation that runs through every covenant administration. Uh, right? And so Abraham, you know, and you, all the nations shall be blessed. And then Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of that. Uh, and he goes up into heaven, and in Matthew 28, the Great Commission passage says, Go therefore uh, into the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Ghost. And so the blessing of salvation is going out to the nations through Christ and the new covenant, which is exactly what God said would be what would occur to Abraham. And that was the, the covenant promise to Abraham. Um, and, of course, that same promise is there to Moses. It's more particularized with him. You look at King David later on. There's going to be a king to sit on his throne forever. That would be Jesus, ultimately. Um, you know, with Moses was the giving of the law and the commandments and so on. And um, so, you know, Christ is our king. Christ, you know, Christ is our priest. He is the great lawgiver. So we have the Ten Commandments. Christ fulfills and keeps the commandments. And now is our king giving us his commandments. But it's not as if the Ten Commandments under the law of Moses and the commandments Christ give uh, are somehow at odds. They're not at all at, odd, at odds, right? Jesus says you can summarize all the law and the prophets, uh, all the commandments as love your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. So he's not replacing the Ten Commandments. He's not doing away with them. Um, but he is realizing them in the most highest, fullest understanding and sense of, of it. Um, if you th think of a someone drawing a picture, making a sketch or an outline, all the earlier covenants are the beginning stages of the sketch, but the full picture comes into view when Christ comes in the flesh. And so it's, it's all continuous uh, and they're all connected. And so it's one covenant under various administrations, under the Old Testament, with circumcision, now the New Testament, with baptism. Um, so I just wanted to try to help make that clear. Uh, in Hebrews, there's a change in the, it talks about the, 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 from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. What is there a change in? There's a change in the priesthood. Uh, there's a change in the mediator, right? You had the, um, the Levites, the priest in the Old Testament. Now Christ is our great high priest. You had the animal sacrifice. Now Christ is the high priest who offers up himself as an atonement for sin. In the Old Testament, uh, Hebrews talks about the mediator of the covenant being uh, Moses. But now it is Jesus Christ. And so there is a changing of the guard, if you will, from the types and shadows of the Old Testament to the realization of them uh, in the New Testament in Christ. But why is Christ able to fill in, in the true and ultimate sense, these types and shadows? Because the types and shadows are talking about him. And so the covenant was always aiming and leading up to him, right? You can't have uh, a shadow cast except by uh, you know, the person standing in front of the sun that's making the shadow fall, right? So Jesus' shadow is falling back into the Old Testament in that covenant. And so that covenant is about Christ and contains Christ in a shadowy form. 
Um, obviously, he's not in the flesh yet, but there's even pre-incarnate, you know, appearances of Christ in the Old Testament. You can talk about who Melchizedek is and different things like that uh, also. And Melchizedek comes in Hebrews, uh, what, chapter 7, I believe, too. The point is there is a unity of the covenants so that you, in one sense, you can truly and rightly speak of them as one covenant in its essence, right? There's still the priesthood. There's still the sacrifice. There's still the mediator. It's all in Jesus now. And then we in him serve and obey and are called priests too. And we're, we were created to fill the earth and subdue it, to rule over it in a kingly sort of way. So in, you know, in Christ, we are you know, children of the, of the king. Uh, and so we have uh, a royalty, you know, a royal priest in that sense, right? Um, hopefully that's all making sense. And, you know, Christ is our prophet, priest, and king, and in him there's a sense in which we are prophet, priest, and king as well because the continuity of the covenants is there. And Christ is the realization of all the old covenant promises. Uh, and yet, in the new covenant, um, there's still uh, a, a administration of the new covenant. There's still a new covenant administration and therefore a sign uh, and seal of that new covenant and how it is administered, how it, how it is uh, given out or dispensed, if you want to use that word. And of course, as we're saying, that sign is baptism. Uh, and that's what Jesus says, go into the nations, baptizing them. Okay? Make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And some, you know, the Baptist will say, well, see, you make disciples first, then you baptize them. Well, that's one way to try to read the text there. Uh, I believe the proper way is to read the text as go and make disciples of the nations by baptizing them. That's how you disciple the nations. Um, now, that's not, obviously that's not saying um, that you don't preach the gospel. You go to a foreign country where the gospel has not been, or there's a tribe of people or whatever that has never heard the gospel. You just don't start baptizing them. They have no right to the covenant. But what do you do? You, you, you proclaim the covenant to them. You proclaim Jesus Christ and him crucified, the gospel, the good news. And then those who repent and believe and trust in Jesus, you make them disciples by baptizing them. And they are baptized into what? Into the church. They become members. And that's part of the covenant community. And who is that promise? Who, who would we say the promise of the covenant is to? Just to them? No, we say this promise is to you and to your children and to all who are far off as many as the Lord our God would call. And that's back to the Acts chapter 2 passage. So that was like 11 minutes of, you know, preliminary, um, I don't know, discussion there. And now I do want to turn to Hebrews chapter 3 and 4. And then I also have time, want to go to Romans chapter 11. These are verses that really helped me fully better understand um, household baptism, or what might be called infant baptism sometimes, and the nature of the covenant. Um, and so let's look at Hebrews chapter 3 and 4. I'm going to read it and probably make some running commentary on it. Beginning at verse 1 in chapter 3, Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus. See, he's the high priest. Who was faithful to him, who appointed him, as Moses also was faithful in all his house. Right? There was Moses and, and the covenant under him. And now there's Jesus. For this one, capital one, so Jesus, uh, has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who built the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but he who built all things is God. 
In verse 5, and indeed, and Moses indeed was faithful in all his house as a servant. And the his there is capital. It's not Moses' house, it's Jesus' house. Moses was faithful in the house of the Lord as a servant for a testimony of those things which would be spoken afterward. But Christ as a son over his own house, whose house we are, we the people of God are, if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. So I guess my first 11 minute lead in was good because it did connect uh, directly to this, which I, I knew, but I wasn't necessarily thinking about bringing it to Hebrews 3 with all the other stuff, but praise God it connects. So already here in verse 6 of Hebrews chapter 3, it talks about we being in the house of God, the house of Christ, if we hold our confidence, our faith, steadfastly, firm to the end. Now, what does that already imply? Well, it implies that we aren't his house, ultimately, if we don't hold our confidence fast, firm to the end. And often the way the Baptist will take these passages, again, would be to say that, well, if you don't hold your confidence you know, firm to the end, then you were never in the covenant to begin with. They have to admit, in one sense, they, that they were really and truly in the church because they were literally you know, baptized into the church and counted as members. But they're saying that, that basically, I, I think they would say that, well, God doesn't really, you know, view it that way, that it was a, you know, a, a minister does the best that he can, the elders do the best they can, uh, judging someone's profession of faith. But if it turns out that it was never genuine to begin with, then hopefully the church will recognize that. And if the person does not repent, then they would be removed from membership. The Baptist says, in God's eyes the whole time, that person was never in the covenant in any sense in the new covenant at all. Um, and basically it was just, you know, a mistake to baptize them and um, that baptism and that profession of faith by that person, that false profession of faith, you know, was just meant absolutely nothing to God. He didn't, he's like, he didn't even notice it, didn't even care about it. It, it, it changed nothing. Uh, that person's relationship to God changed in no way, shape or form. That's typically how the Baptist would understand that passage. I mean, that's the way I used to understand it myself, even, even as a Calvinist, because I just didn't understand my own Reformed Presbyterian heritage so well. Um, but Scripture, I think, does indicate that clearly that one who is baptized by profession of faith, there's been a translation um, outside of the covenant, outside of the new covenant, into the new covenant. And within the new covenant, there are true believers and there are, sadly, uh, unbelievers, those who are in there by false profession or those who are in there who are children of the covenant, baptized and born into the covenant, who may grow up and sadly reject the covenant, reject the gospel, reject the promises, and by unbelief, fall away and be removed. And that's exactly what the next verses in Hebrews 3 are going to uh, exhort us to avoid doing, avoid falling away, but rather to be steadfast and be firm to the end. And, he, and the author of Hebrews is going to do that by quoting the Holy Spirit from the Old Testament. And he's going to do that several times here in, in chapters 3 and 4 to make the point. Um, so now let's go down to verse 7 in Hebrews chapter 3. Uh, just looking at something here. Okay, and it says, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today... If you will hear his voice, right? And this is quoting um, 
on my notes says Psalm 95 here. I, I have to go back and look at the exact place where it's quoting. Um, Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tested me, tried me, and saw my works 40 years. As this is the wilderness wandering of the Israelites, uh, right, in the Exodus before they entered the promised land. Now, let, let's go back to, to, you know, to verse 6 real quick. But Christ is a son over his own house, whose house we are today, New Testament believers are, in the New Covenant, if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. Right? The author of Hebrews is not saying that we are the house of God to a bunch of pagans who've never heard the gospel. These are people who have already heard the gospel, who have been baptized, who are members of the, of the, of the church and therefore of the New Covenant. Right? And so it's in that context, and all of us in you know, the first six verses of chapter 3 that I read to you, when you come to verse 7, it says, therefore, so in light of all that was just said in chapter 3, and really you can go back in the first couple of chapters of Hebrews as well, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, in the day of trial in the wilderness, when your father, where your fathers uh, tested me, tried me, and saw my works 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. So that's the Old Testament quote comparing us to, to the Israelites that, that will not enter the rest. They did not, many fell away. They, well, right, the whole generation under 40, God had them wander in the wilderness for 40 years because of their rebellion against God, even after he took them out of slavery in the house of Egypt, right? So if you look at, think of it like this, when the Israelites are enslaved in Egypt, that is a slavery, a physical slavery that's, that pictures our spiritual slavery, enslavement to sin, before we know Christ, right? Well, what does Moses do? What does God tell Moses to do? You know, go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go. Let the Israelites go. And so Pharaoh does that. Well, Moses, as the mediator of that old covenant, faithful over the Lord's house, over all the people in the wilderness, um, those people in the wilderness are made up of believers and unbelievers. But the, the believers and the male children have the sign of circumcision. The households are counted as, all of them are counted as part of the covenant. And yet, many of them fall away. Many of them are not ultimately saved. Now, we're not saying, to be clear, that somehow all that Moses took out, all that God delivered of Israel were somehow born again, um, and then some lost their born-again status. They were, you know, died again. No, if you're alive in Christ, and that, that would, I would use the same language with the Old Testament saints as well, those who truly believed in Jesus were alive in Christ. It was just that it was before he came in the flesh and made atonement for sin, but they're still alive, united to God, to God the Son, if you will. Um, they, they cannot lose that salvation. Once you're saved, Christ keeps you. He doesn't lose you. But there are those whom Christ took out of slavery in Egypt and who were part of the covenant who were lost. And so why are we in the new covenant being compared to the same, in the same way and are exhorted daily, exhort one another daily, lest you become hardened through the deceitfulness of sin, right? In verse 13 and verse 14, it says, we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. Now, the Baptist will say, see, uh, verse 14 proves that uh, 
the New Testament believer is not in the covenant and has no um, participation, uh, has no partaking in Christ, uh, unless you hold the beginning of your confidence steadfast to the end. Well, what's wrong with that? That proves too much for the Baptist. Have any of us, have any of us held fast to the end yet? Well, no, because we're not dead yet, or Christ hasn't returned yet, right? I mean, either we're going to die, and that'll be the end, or Christ will return, and that'll be the end. So for, it to, for, it, for this verse 14 to mean, we have become partakers of Christ only if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end, that, that's a problem for the Baptist because that would mean that none of us can be assured of our salvation now. None of us can necessarily be said to be partakers of Christ uh, yet, uh, right? Because none of us have persevered in the faith all the way to the end yet. Well, so what does this verse mean? Well, it means that we have become partakers of Christ salvifically, right? Not, you know, not just covenantally, like in the covenant, but salvifically if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. And you might say, well, then I as a Presbyterian have the same problem because, um, you know, I, no Presbyterian has held his confidence fast to the end either. Well, and I would say you are right, but what I can say and know is that I am in the covenant and Christ has made promises to me, covenantal promises to me, that if I walk by faith and receive him by faith and receive Christ by faith, I can know that I am a child of God, that I am part of his people and part of his family. And so the covenant even comes to bear in, in a sense, right, when it comes to our assurance of salvation. Um, and if you're a true believer, there is no doubt that you will hold your fast to uh, be, be, you know, hold, hold staff steadfastly to the end. Um, but to receive all the covenant blessings we get a foretaste of that now, as a down payment of the Holy Spirit is for us. But the fullness of our covenantal blessings, of our salvation, even as a Christian, we don't have yet. So be that full partaker of Christ only comes after the end, when we receive the new heavens, the new earth, and our glorified bodies, and all of that. So there is a sense in which none of us have received that yet. So, I, you know, it's just something to think about. I don't want to belabor it too much. But verse 15 says, While it is said, Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as in the rebellion. So this is a being applied to us again. Don't be like them. Don't, don't, don't harden your heart. Remain steadfast. You're in the covenant as the Israelite, Israelite um, believers and unbelievers are in the covenant. Be like those who persevere to the end and receive the promises, right? The, and that's another thing. What does the promised land, Canaan, symbolize? The new heavens, the new earth. That's what it symbolizes. So those who entered in, right, had faith, to the end. Now, even that was imperfect because we know many of them stumble and fall away, but you, you get the, 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 the analogy, the picture that's being made there. Um, you know, Moses didn't in the promised land doesn't mean he wasn't a true believer. He did get to see it from afar off because it was his, it did belong to him and so on. You know, Joshua goes into the land, the next generation comes in. Um, so, we as Christians need to exhort one another as well. Like, let, let us be faithful. Let us not be like the Israelites who died in the wilderness. We right now are on our wilderness journey, if you will, in this lost and dying world to the heavenly city when Christ returns and he makes all things new. So we exhort and encourage one another to keep the faith, to persevere, to press on. And God uses that, those means, to preserve us and to persevere us in the faith by his strength and for his glory. And we need that as Christians. 
Even John MacArthur, who's certainly not a Presbyterian, says, you know, if you could lose your salvation, you would. And that's a good point. We don't stand. We didn't get into the covenant and we did not, uh, we were not saved or born again by our own effort. It's all by the sovereign mercy of God. Our faith itself is a gift of God. And even our standing before the Lord in Christ, walking day by day, is a gift of God by the power of his spirit. We cannot hold fast in our own strength. We persevere only by the grace of God and his strength. Now notice in verse 16, Hebrews 3.16, it says, For who, having heard, rebelled? Indeed, was it not all who came out of Egypt, led by Moses? I mean, in some ways, it was virtually all of them, right? Uh, that, that, that's why they had to wait 40 years for that generation to die out. Now with whom was he angry? Who was God angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose corpses fell in the wilderness? They were his people, yet they died in the wilderness. They did not inherit the promises. And they were not true partakers of, of Christ. And yet, they were in the covenant. In verse 18, And to whom did he swear, did God swear, that they would not enter his rest, but to those who did not obey? Verse 19 says, So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. And that's key. Because you had in the Old Testament those in the covenant who were unbelievers. And we're exhorted the same way. Why? Because in the New Covenant... There are unbelievers, and we want to be found as believers. And if there are any unbelievers, uh, we want the unbeliever to be aware of that so that they can repent and, and come to true faith. Now, verse uh, chapter 4, verse 1, it says, Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, God's rest, let us fear, lest any of you seem to have come short of it. Again, what you know, why would this need to be said if it's impossible to come short of it if you're in the New Covenant? The Baptists will say, well, it's because the church today, uh, there's people in the church who are not part of the New Covenant. I mean, I, that's what my Reformed Baptist friends will say. Um, so they create this category and they say, well, yes, in the Old Testament they were in the Covenant, but now in the New Testament, they're, they're, you know, the same verses are applied, but they're not really in the Covenant now. Um, and I'm saying, well, but that's not what the scripture says. You're importing that based on your Jeremiah 31 interpretation rather than letting, you know, Hebrews 10 interpret Jeremiah 31 for you. And I did that in, a, I think, the previous recording and also uh, on Facebook in a written out thing. Um, you know, in Hebrews chapter 10, it talks about Jeremiah 31. They all shall not move from the least to the greatest and all of that. And, and, and even there it says, how much more punishment would you be worthy of if you uh, trample the Son of God underfoot? Uh, you know, profane and reject the blood of the covenant by which you are sanctified and outrage the spirit of grace. And it says the Lord will judge his people. And yeah, we should fear him in that righteous sense. So it's there's no mistake, especially from Hebrews 10, that the new covenant believer uh, can fall away and break that covenant if he's not a, a true Christian. And that doesn't mean, therefore, that he was never in the covenant to begin with. He was. And that's the point. And that's what Hebrews 10 makes very clear connected to that Jeremiah 31 passage. Now, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 2, For indeed, the gospel was preached to us as well as to them. See how we are perfectly paralleled. And in, in the other things that I've been saying, uh, in Galatians 3, it says the gospel was preached to Abraham beforehand. And it says it again here in verse 2 of Hebrews chapter 4. For indeed, the gospel was preached to us, that is, the new covenant believer, as well as to them, the old covenant believer, the Israelites. But what happened? The word which they heard, as Old Testament believers heard, did not profit them not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. It was not mixed with faith. They were unbelievers. 
Verse 3, for, for we who have believed do enter that rest, as he um, has said, as Jesus as God has said, so I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. And then verse 4, for, for he has spoken in a certain place of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this place, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains that some must enter it, and those to whom it was first preached did not enter because of disobedience. Again, he designates a certain day, saying in David, Today, after such a long time, as it has been said, Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, then he would not afterward have spoken of another day. There remains therefore a rest for the people of God. For he who has entered his rest... Jesus rest, God's rest, has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. Um, so you have that reiteration of that verse from the Old Testament today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And um, this assurance and, and, and promise that if we have entered his rest, we've ceased from our works, um, meaning we're resting in Christ, not relying on our own strength. Uh, Jesus' works uh, covers us, his righteousness is ours. Uh, imputed to us, all you know, all of these things come into view. Um, I just wanted to check something here. Uh, so there, yeah, the, you know, the point is, um, let, let, let's think of it in the Old Testament, for uh, Joshua or Moses or you know the few that were faithful in that wilderness wandering, the very few. What was it, Aaron or um, Caleb, as well? Um, and they get to go into the promised land. They were believers, and they had entered that rest while still, while while still in the wilderness, wandering uh, in the desert, before they entered Canaan, before they entered the promised land. Why is that important? Well, we today, if we are a true believer, born again from above, have the new birth, we are regenerated, have new life. Though we are in our wilderness wandering. Until Christ returns and we receive the ultimate promised land of the new heavens and new earth, we too have already entered into that rest. And so we can take heart. We're not earning our salvation. We're not trying to earn his rest. We have entered his rest. But it's, it's still a, um, a foretaste of that rest. It's not the fullness of it, right? Because we don't experience yet the fullness of our salvation. We still are sinners. We still struggle against sin. We're surrounded by sinners. The devil's still on the prowl. Um, Christ has not made all things new yet. Um, and so we've entered the rest in one true sense, and that rest is uh, exhibited, and we have a foretaste of that rest every time we worship corporately on the Lord's Day, on Sunday. Right? That's, that's another reason why corporate gathered worship is so important, because we have entered that promised rest as a foretaste. And it's the first day of the week now, instead of the last day of the week, because it's in Christ, he, He's come. And that flips everything for us. We work from rest. We don't work unto rest, but we work out of the rest, the salvation that we've been given in Christ already. The first day of the week even pictures that transformation in Christ. And, uh, and that's a glorious thing. So there, there should be no uh, reason to doubt that if you are truly a child of God and believe in him truly, that you, have, uh, you are already converted and saved and have entered, in, a, in one sense, truly, his rest. Nevertheless, all of us need to continue to persevere in the faith so that we can be sure that we've entered that rest and that we'll receive the fullness of those 
um, of the promise of our salvation when Christ returns. And so that's what Hebrews goes on to say in verse 11 of chapter 4. Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest. Right? So there's a sense in which we have entered it. Right? I mean, verse 10 and 11, let's read them together. They're not contradictory. It, it, it explains exactly what I just said a second ago. Verse 10, for he who has entered his rest, and so some have, we have, as true believers have, has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. Right? You know, and, and you could say, well, those who have entered the rest are those who have died and gone to heaven, and that's certainly true. But, but even in Christ now, we have entered, in a sense, that rest. And then verse 11, let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest. Let us be diligent to enter that rest in the fullest sense, to keep persevering, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. Again, let us persevere. This is addressed to the churches. This is addressed to the New Covenant believers. This was, the Hebrews is understood basically to be a sermon. And so this is a, this is a sermon. This is preaching here. And this is how, when I preach, I exhort the congregation to persevere, grow in holiness, do this by the strength of God. And our forerunner, forerunner, Jesus Christ, by the power of his spirit. You can't do it in yourself, but you can and you will do it in and through Christ. So fight on, persevere. Let us encourage and exhort one another. Because if we do not have holiness, if we do not persevere, we will fall away and, and be shown to have never been truly born again to begin with. And will be shown to be breakers of the new covenant. We were baptized, we made a profession of faith, we identified ourselves with Christ and he with us. And then we trample the Son of God underfoot and outraged the Spirit of grace, as it says in Hebrews chapter 10. Whoa, that is serious sin, right? Hell is going to be ten times hotter for those who took on the sign and seal of baptism, who professed faith, continued for a while, but then didn't enter the rest because they trampled the Son of God underfoot. Ten times hotter for them than for the pagan who never ever gets to hear the gospel, but yet in his heart hard-heartedness, you know, just rejects the Lord and, and he'll go to hell too, but the punishment will be more severe for the new covenant breaker. And so verse 12 of Hebrews 4 says, for the, Lord of, for the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And there's no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an, give an account. Um, again, this is an ex exhortation to keep going. So let's finish up this chapter here, and then we'll look at Romans 11. Seeing then that we have a great high priest, that's Jesus, right, who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. This is plainly talking about those who are in the new covenant. How else could the writer say that we have a great high priest? We have a great high priest. The whole point of the Baptist position is saying those in the church who aren't really born again don't have Christ as the great high priest. But Hebrews says just the opposite in verse 14 of Hebrews chapter 4. It says, seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need i mean i almost want to keep reading but you know 
hopefully you see the connections and the parallels here. The mediator in the Old Covenant was Moses. Um, but just as the blood of bulls and goats could not take away the sins, Moses was a sinful, imperfect mediator. He could not be the true and ultimate mediator, but it pointed to the one who was to come, both of those things, which is Jesus. If he is our great high priest, let us persevere in the faith. Let us, let us pre press on. And it goes on to talk about, in, in chapter 5 of Hebrews, um, that Jesus is our great high priest forever. Uh, and down in verse 6, you're a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Um, right? And even Melchizedek is there in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament. And they, they talk about that a little bit. And so that's how we know what the name Melchizedek. Um, uh, you know, and so it shows, again, the unity of the Old Testament and the New Testament covenants. It's just from types and shadows to fulfillment and embodiment now. Um, so Christ is um, a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. The name Melchizedek literally means, you know, um, king of, of righteousness. And um, Christ is our righteousness. And then it goes on, and, and just doing a quick look through of Hebrews 5 here. Uh, verse 12 says, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. Um, for everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he's a babe, but solid food belongs to those who are full age, that is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. And that's what the encouragement, you know, that the encouragement is to go on to, you know, um, it even says leaving in verse uh, 1 of chapter 6, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ. Let us go on to perfection. Uh, laying, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptisms, of laying on of hands, of resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment. Right? These are basics that we need to get in place now. Sometimes we do have debates on, you know, baptism. You know, baptisms could be more than just the baptism we're thinking of. But, um, but look, it says in verse 4 of Hebrews 6, it is impossible for those who were once enlightened, right, they become part of the new covenant, and have tasted the heavenly gift, uh, and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit. There's a participation in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. If they fall away, to renew them again to repentance, so they, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God, and put him to an open shame. Now notice verses 7 and 8. For the earth which drinks in the rain that often comes upon it and bears herbs useful for those by whom it is cultivated receives blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and briars, it is rejected and near to being cursed, whose end is to be burned. Right? So again, this indication that some can fall away after, I mean, verse 4, uh, uh, they were enlightened, they've tasted the heavenly gift, and they've become partakers of the Holy Spirit. Now, again, it, it's so easy, and this is the way I used to understand this too, to say, well, that's just a hypothetical. No one can have the Holy Spirit and lose it, because that would mean, you know, you were born again and you lost it. But I, but I think there's probably, and, and some take it that way, even some Presbyterians, I believe, I'm pretty sure, take it that way. But as I've studied, I think the partaking of the Holy Spirit and tasting the good word of the things to come um, isn't saying that they had 
you know, beyond a taste, a fullness of it, like they were actually born again, but that they are in the new covenant and that they are in the, the sphere where the Holy Spirit is at work. And so by being part of the new covenant people, in that sense, there is a, um, a work of the Spirit operative among the people of God. Not that they were born again and lost it, but that they're in that realm of the Holy Spirit, and so then they fall away. And the verses 7 and 8 in Hebrews chapter 6 is very important because what does it remind you of? It reminds you of John chapter 15, uh, at least it does for me, about uh, that God the Father is the vine dresser, Christ is the vine, and we are the branches, and every branch that is in him that does not bear fruit is taken out, cut out, and thrown into the fire. But those who do bear fruit, he prunes, or as it says here in Hebrews, same idea, right? Cultivated, and he received blessing from God, the covenant blessings. And um, you persevere to the end, you receive the fullness of salvation. And so if it's right to go to Hebrews 6, look at Hebrews 6, verses 7 and 8, and, you know, and, and kind of compare that with what Jesus says in John 15. Again, this picture is coming in, that you can have a participation in Christ. I am the vine, you are the branches. You can have some sort of relation to him that is short for some people it's short of true saving faith and being born again and because it's short of true saving faith uh, i think of the parable of the four soils the root is not actually deep it's not you know a union in christ that is truly rooted in him but it's a superficial uh, ultimately a false connection right to him because it's a false profession of faith and yet it is truly in the covenant you don't bear fruit and so then you're removed Move, removed from what? Well, it has to be the covenant. Unless you're going to say you're removed from actually being saved, which nobody, Reformed Baptist or Presbyterian, is saying that. Um, and, you know, we could just go on through Hebrews 7, and, 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 but, but it, you know, it goes back in 6 and 7, back to Melchizedek. Um, and then it talks about the need for a new priesthood. And, and, you know, all of these things. It's just a great, great um, book in the Bible. <laughs> and uh, the New Covenant, again, the Jeremiah 31 passages in Hebrews 8. Um, Hebrews, uh, yeah, I think it comes up in Hebrews 8. And then it comes up again in Hebrews chapter 10. But still there, again, makes clear that you can be a New Covenant breaker, trample the Son of God underfoot, and so on. All right, for, so for the few minutes remaining... That I have, I want to go to Romans chapter 11. And this is just another place, I believe, to see the unity of the covenants, the relation of the Old Testament Israelites and the church, and how you can, even as a Gentile, be a new covenant breaker. So, now we know as Calvinists, the Romans 9 passage is huge right for the sovereignty of god and salvation and so on and so forth um the potter and the clay passage well 9 through 11 is kind of a it's all in continuity uh romans 9 verse 30 says what shall we say then that gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained to righteousness even the righteousness of faith but israel pursuing the law of righteousness salvation by the law has not attained to it uh they don't have salvation you can't earn it it's by grace uh, and that's what it says, verse 32. Why? Because they did not seek it by faith, but as it were, by the works of the law. For they stumbled at that stumbling stone, as it is written. Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense. And whoever believes on him will be put to shame. 
Well, I, well, sorry, will not be put to shame. Believe in Jesus, you will not be put to shame. But in Zion and heaven, the entry gate to heaven, the stumbling stone, the rock of offense, you, you can't get there by blood, you know, by birthright, by being Jewish, by being whatever. You can't do it by works. It's only by grace. You can't earn it. There is no way to get to heaven by your merit. And if you can't accept that, then you can't accept Jesus Christ because he is our righteousness and he alone. And it's a gracious thing. And so we must be humbled and repent to be saved. And that is the heart's desire, by the way, of Paul in, in Romans chapter 10. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. They have a, a, a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Uh, seek to establish their own righteousness. Um, and so on. And it goes on down. Um, verse 12 of uh, Romans 10. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. For wh whoever calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. And then verse 14, how then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless um, they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. But I say, have they not heard? Yes, indeed, their sound has gone out to all the earth and their, their words to the ends of the world. But I say, did Israel not know? First Moses says, I will provoke you to jealousy by those who are not a nation. I will move you to anger by a foolish na nation. But Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I was made manifest to those who did not ask for me. But to Israel, he says, all day long, I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Right? The Jewish people ultimately reject and crucify Christ. They rejected God and Christ before he came in the flesh, God the Son before he became man in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament as the Israelites. They reject him when he comes. Right? They've been rejecting him. They reject him when he comes, so they cry out, crucify him. And then what? The apostles come. They go to the Jews. Uh, the Jews reject them and say, since you reject us, we're going to go to the Gentiles. All right? And so this also gets into the theology of you know, Israel and the church. Are they two separate people or are they one people of God? And the answer is they are one people of God. And Romans 11 is going to make that clear. And by making that clear, also make the unity of the covenants clear. And also by making the unity of the covenants clear, who has a right to the covenant, which will be believers and their children, because that's the same and it's never changed. And so it, it connects all the dots for us. So let's look at Romans 11. I say then, has God cast away his people? Certainly not. For, for I also am an Israelite, of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. And notice, or remember elsewhere in Scripture, Galatians uh, 3 and 4, um, I believe in there, we looked at that. If you have faith, you're a true child of Abraham as well, whether you're a Jew or Gentile. Now, Paul is literally a, a Jew, but, but the point is it's true that we're all seeds of Abraham by faith. Um, God, and then now verse 2 of Hebrew, uh, sorry, Romans 11, Romans 11, verse 2. God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what does the divine response say to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Even so, then, at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. And if by grace, then it is no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. But, it, but if it is of works, it is no longer grace. Otherwise, work is no longer work. What then? What is the point of saying all this? 
Israel has not obtained what it seeks, but the elect have obtained it, and the rest were blinded. Now, there's, there's various interpretations of this, um, but, the, but what I'm going to say, just in short, uh, is that, that God has sent a hardening, a partial hardening to the Israelites, as we're going to see here and read about. But God hasn't totally rejected even the Old Testament Israelite covenant people. There's still a remnant that believes, right? There's, there's still some Jewish, Christ, true, genuine believers in Christ today as there was in the time of Christ and in the Old Testament and the Old Covenant as well. But God is going to use the Gentiles to provoke the Jews to jealousy because the gospel is going to really go forth and God is going to elect and choose many from that nation to provoke the Israelites to, to, to faith and repentance. So verse 8, Just as, as it is written, God has given them a spirit of stupor, eyes that they should not see and ears that they should not hear to this very day. Verse 9, And David says, Let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block, and a recompense to them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they do not see, and bow down their back always. Now verse 11, I say then, Have they stumbled that they should fall? Certainly not. But through their fall, to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. To provoke the Israelites to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Now if their fall, the Jews' fall, is riches for the world, right? The Jews rejected, so the gospel goes to the nations. And therefore, it's riches for us, riches for the world, because we come to faith in Christ. And their failure, the Jews' failure to trust and serve God and obey him, if their failure is riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness, the fullness of all the elect of God, the fullness uh, of even the Jewish people coming to faith in Christ truly. So verse 13, For I speak to you Gentiles, Inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. All right, Paul speaks to the, to the Gentiles right now, the non-Jews. If by any means I may provoke to jealousy those who are my flesh and save some of them. The Jews are the flesh of Paul because he is a Jew. But by proclaiming the gospel to the Gentiles, perhaps the Jews will be provoked to jealousy and repent and believe in him. For if they're being cast away, the Israelites being cast away, the Jews cast away, is the reconciling of the world to God, to Christ. What will their acceptance be but life from the dead? For if the first fruit is holy, the first fruit, the Jews, the first fruit, the lump is also holy. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. Um, uh, yeah, this is the text I want to focus on, so I'm making sure I'm saying this correctly here. Um, the ultimate fruit and fruit is is Christ and then the first that are brought in were the Jews and now the, the Gentiles are coming in by faith uh, in the New Testament New Covenant era. So verse 17 says, and if some of the branches were broken off now remember, Paul's speaking to the Gentiles here, he says, I speak to you Gentiles in verse 13 and now in verse 17, still speaking to the Gentiles he says, if some of the branches are broken off and that would be the Jews, he says and you being a wild olive tree were grafted in among them so Gentiles are grafted in among the Jews, right? Because some of the Jews are broken off, lack of faith, unbelief, broke the covenant. Now what's happening? You Gentiles, some of you, you're wild. You weren't naturally part of the people of God as God first, you know, with circumcision covenanted with the Israelite people. You Gentiles, being a wild olive tree, you're now grafted in among them. And with them became a partaker of the root and fatness of the olive tree. What does that mean? Well, who is the ultimate olive tree? Who is 
the fatness that we're partaking of. It's the salvation of Jesus Christ. It's Jesus. Think about this. The unity. The Old Testament saints, the Israelites, they have become... They, in the Old Testament, they were partakers of the root and the fatness of the olive tree, just as we in the New Testament, are, are Gentiles are grafted in. Who is that olive tree? Always, Old Testament, New Testament, it is Jesus Christ. There's no fatness, there's no root, there's no life outside of Christ. The Old Testament saints, the Israelites, the Jewish people, if they were truly believing and repenting and were truly born again, it was Jesus that they were united to before he took on flesh. Because it's the same thing that we gent we Gentiles are brought into. It's always Jesus. Now, let's keep going. Verse 18, he says, Do not boast against the branches. But if you do boast, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches are broken off, that I might be grafted in. Some of the Jews were broken off by hardness of heart. God sent a hardening on them so that Gentiles might be um, come into the faith of Christ and salvation in him. Well, what does Paul say here in verse 20? Well said, because of unbelief, apostasy, covenant breaking, they were broken off and you stand by faith. Do not be haughty, don't be arrogant, but fear. Why? Why fear if in the new covenant, being grafted into Christ, there's no such thing as a new covenant breaker? Why fear? Well, because Paul is going to say under inspiration of God that you can break the new covenant. Verse 21, for if God did not spare the natural branches... He may not spare you either. Who is the you either? Who are the unnatural branches? Well, it's the wild olive shoots. Who are the wild olive shoots? It's the Gentiles to whom Paul is speaking, in which he says he's speaking to the Gentiles in verse 13. He may not spare us either. Wow. Yeah, exactly. Verse 22 says, Therefore, consider the goodness and severity of God on those who fell, severity, but towards you, goodness, if, you continue in his goodness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. I mean, it's just point blank. Point blank, my friends. You could be, we Gentiles could be cut off as well from the commonwealth, from the covenant, from Christ, if we're not truly born again. Now, here's more. Let's, let's just keep going. Verse 23. And they also, if they do not continue in unbelief, they'll be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. The Jewish people could be grafted in again in mass. Uh, and, and, you know, and so an unbeliever who apostatizes, you know, but recognizes his sin, recognizes his false profession and, and so on, if he truly repents and believe, can be grafted in again. So verse 24, for if you were cut out of the olive tree, uh, which is wild by nature and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these who are natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? Yeah, the Jews can be brought back in. It would be natural for them to be brought back in. And it was unnatural to take a wild olive shoot into this tree, into Christ. And if it's unnatural, but it could be done for us Gentiles, then certainly the Jewish people could be brought back in as well. Verse 25, For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved. As it is written, that all Israel is who? All Israel is Jews and Gentiles together, ultimately. The deliverer will come out of Zion, and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Verse 28, concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, the unbelieving Jews. 
But concerning the uh, election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For as you were once disobedient to God, yet have now obtained mercy through their, the Israelites' disobedience, even so these also have now been disobedient, the uh, Israelites and so on, that through the mercy shown you, they also may obtain mercy. For God has committed them all to disobedience, that he might have mercy on all. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has become his counselor, or who has first given to him, and it shall be repaid to him? For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. So, I mean, there's lots to say there, but the point I want to make for what I'm doing especially is that you can be a Gentile grafted into Christ, the same um, being grafted into the same thing that the Jews have been grafted into, which is Jesus, which is salvation in Christ. They were broken out, and it says to the Gentiles, you can be broken out also, which means you can break the covenant, just as the Israelites did in the old covenant, which means there's new covenant breakers, and there's no change about who gets to be included in the covenant, and therefore the children are still part of the covenant. Um and I think you can also look at this passage about maybe there will be a future point where a lot of ethnic Jewish people, that partial hardening will be lifted once they're provoked to jealousy and the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Others debate that. Um, and that is not at all saying that I'm a dispensationalist. I don't believe in some national uh, restoration of the Jewish people, but that many people who are ethnically Jewish may you know, come back in. I think you can support that from Romans 11 here, but that's just a separate issue there. So hopefully this has been helpful for you, particularly when it comes to the new covenant, who's included in it, and that it's not a regenerate only new covenant administration yet at this time. That will only occur um, when Christ returns in the renewed heavens and earth. Thanks and God bless.